0: Pride comes before the fall. Pride comes before the fall. And I found that out the hard way the day before my wedding day. Uh, My good friend loaned me his awesome company car for the special day. It was a Mercedes E300 uh, sedan in its beautiful blue color. There's a picture of it coming up there. Uh, remember this was some time ago yeah it's an older model but it was it was brand new back then uh, and it was lovely and this was going to be our wedding car but because my friend lent it to me early uh, and I got it early it meant I could take it out myself for a spin on the roads in KL the day before the wedding being the petrol head that I am I was really excited I'd never sat in a Mercedes before let alone driven one so as soon as I got into this car, well, on the road I started to feel quite, you know, smug. As you often would if you start driving in a brand new Mercedes. I, I, in fact, I pretty soon I forgot this was actually not even my car. Now I became quite proud as I zipped past the MyVs and the Honda Civics on the roads. As I took a few corners a bit too quickly, look at me in my Mercedes. Stupid pride until it all came to a screeching halt, quite literally, when on one of the tighter streets in KL, I came this close to scratching my friend's company's Mercedes-Benz. And that brought me back down to earth very quickly, as I suddenly remembered with that, this is not my car. I've got to stop being a proud idiot, and I need to honor my friend for the wonderful gift that he has given to me and so treat it properly with respect. I'd done nothing to deserve that car and it was my duty to look after it and behave well in it. Pride comes before the fall so often. Uh, Back in Deuteronomy 8, what we had a couple of weeks ago, we saw God giving his people who he has now brought out of slavery and brought to the very edge of his promised rest, he gave them a warning because he knows that their pride could mean catastrophe for them as they go into his land to know his blessing. Come back with me to chapter 8, verse 17. See this warning. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember The Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get His wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. As we work through these chapters today, God continues to lovingly warn His people do not become proud, and so stray from Me, your Lord and God, when you get comfy in the land of My blessing. He gives them this series of reality checks. First to make it clear why they're even receiving the land in the first place and then what they need to do in order to remain in it and remain blessed. So let's come to this first reality check God gives to his people here. Their wickedness, not your goodness. Their wickedness, not your goodness. Chapter nine, verse one. Here, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. You see, Israel are so close to treading in the land, but they knew it was already occupied by these nations far greater both in number and in strength and in military might than they could ever hope to be. The only reason they stood a chance of conquest in the land and the land becoming theirs is because God had decreed it. They would conquer these other nations only by his mighty hand. And God makes it clear, uh, the reason Israel be the victors, victors, it's not because they are good. Not because they somehow deserve what they're receiving. See again in verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. As Israel takes the land territories that humanly speaking would have been impossible for them they're going to be tempted to think we're pretty special that was the pagan way of thinking in their day a lot of people still hold to this today you do right by God and he will do right by you honor your gods they would say so the nations fought and they will look after you and so Israel might think well look we're pretty good We've done right by God, and so now God is going to do right by us. Look at this land he's giving us as a reward. God says no. No, the land will be yours, but it's not because you deserve it. It's not because you are good. See, carrying on in verse 4, the reason... Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Israel are not receiving the land because they are the really good guys. They are receiving the land because they are God's instruments to deal with the really bad guys. These other nations are already in the land living away from God for their own wicked desires. And when Israel forget their place in God's plan... And they start to think, actually, no, it's because we're so good, we're worthy. Well, God tells them, Israel, just remember, yeah? Just look back to your past. We've got our second reality check. Remember, you're not good, you're stubborn. Come with me to verse 6. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. See, Israel, for the most part, have been a childish brat up to this point. A bunch of ungrateful, rebellious grumblers Uh, Despite God's unquestionable faithfulness to them from the day he brought them by his hand out of slavery to the day they reached his promised land, and here now he reminds them of some of the really low points for them on their journey with him. Far from currying his favor, Israel repeatedly caused God's anger to burn against them. Firstly, we're reminded of what happened back at the mountain when God first established his covenant with his people. Verse 8. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Moses reminds them of the time when God effectively ratified the covenant with his people. He he went onto the mountain to receive God's law forty days, forty nights. And what that basically involved is it's effectively God taking his people to himself as his bride. They had already sworn allegiance to him as their true God, who had delivered them from Egypt. They said, Yes, we're gonna trust you, Lord. Yes, we're gonna obey you, Lord. And this covenant, much like a marriage, it was gonna bind them together. So that out of all the nations, Israel would know the true God as their God, their faithful Lord and provider in all things. And they would be his chosen people set apart for him. Out of all the nations, the ones able to know the richness of his blessing as they live faithfully under his rule. And yet on the very day that God ratifies that covenant with his people, we're told he's ready to destroy them. Off the face of the earth. Verse 13. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot their name from under heaven, and I will make of you, speaking to Moses, a nation mightier and greater than they. (coughs) And Moses, hearing these words up on the mountain, what on earth is going on? So he rushes down the mountain. Verse 16. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. Just think how scandalous it would be if on the same day that a couple wed, the bride that evening comes to the bedroom only to find her newly wedded husband in bed with another woman. That is the kind of unfaithfulness Israel are guilty of here. The very day God, as it were, married his people, they committed adultery against him. Despite his faithfulness, despite having saved them to himself that they might know his every blessing, the very day the covenant's ratified, Israel commit adultery. Their lack of faith. Moses was gone. They weren't sure. And so what do they do Having been forbidden from doing it, they still fashion a God of their own creation and they bow down to it. Moses, what does he do? Verse 17. So I took hold of the two tablets and I threw them out of my hands and broke them before your eyes. He makes it clear to Israel exactly what they have done, smashing the signs of the covenant before their eyes, what they had done in their adultery. You see this. We see this pattern tragically again and again on the way to the land. See how it goes on in verse 22. At Taberah also, and at Massah, and at Kippur Hatava, you provoke the Lord to wrath. Again, three points along Israel's journey to the land, and each of these three places, their very names signify God's anger against His stubborn, wayward people. Taberah, it means burning because that's where some of their camp was consumed in response to their grumbling. Massa means testing, because they tested the Lord. They questioned if he was really with them. Kibrov Hatava literally means graves of craving, where Israel failed to trust God in their greed, abused his provision for them, and some perished as a result. And then they're reminded of how they nearly blew it on the edge of his land itself, promised to them. Verse 23, And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and take possession of the land that I've given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. See, the minute Israel think they're secure in the land because of their own merits, God says, just look back, guys. Remember how stubborn and disobedient you were, how many times my wrath burned against you. It's quite amazing that they even made it to this point, really. And yet we're not kept in the dark as to why. We're reminded three times in these verses why God did not destroy them in their sin. Three times we're told what Moses did for their sakes. Look back in 9.18. This is Moses, then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before 40 days, 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And that same event of Moses lying prostrate before the Lord the same 40 days and 40 nights, it's repeated for us three times, 918 and then later in 925 and then later in 10 verse 10. We're told again and again and again, Moses was on the mountain pleading with God to spare his people despite their sin, so that his name would not be tarnished in the eyes of the nations, so that his promise to Abraham, their forefathers, would not be broken. Not, Not because Israel deserved to be spared, but for the good of God's name who had spared them. And so these words stand as a testimony to them The land's not yours because you're good but because God is faithful and gracious and spared you by his servant Moses who interceded for you when you were facing destruction. So first warning for us, pride comes before the fall because sadly, like Israel, we as God's people today, we are not immune to the folly of pride. Like them, I know for myself personally, my track record is far from good. You know, I I look back, and and I remember one instance how when I was first asked to lead my church youth group back in my teenage years, and I hadn't expected the responsibility, suddenly my mates were looking up to me as their new leader, and very soon it went to my head. I thought to myself, I I know I'm a sinner, I know all those things, of course, but, you know, I'm actually one of the better sinners, really. I'm pretty special, right? I'm a youth leader i'm a grown-up christian now i'm in a respectable role people are looking at me i'm using my energy to prepare bible studies i'm using my time to organize team events you know actually in fact yeah i'm a sinner but even so god's still got to be a little bit impressed with me he's got to be so thankful he chose me all those years ago and as my pride grew so my love for him and my love for the people that he gave me to serve dwindled I was keen to be listened to. I wasn't keen to listen to others. I was keen to have my needs met as a leader, not so keen to meet the needs of others under my care. But pride comes before the fall. And one day it all came crashing down for me, when in my pride I was really rude to one of the elders in my church in the public meeting. And my mum saw it and she humbled me in front of everybody as only mothers can do. Thank God for her. Thank God for her. Because it was his way of bringing me back to my senses, of humbling me. Reminding me of the reality of my position before him, before it was too late. Reminding me of what an unworthy servant I am and I always will be. Soaked in sin before my Lord and God. Worthy of his condemnation, not a reward. And yet able to know him as my Father in heaven who cares for me. Only because he has shown me unfathomable love in the death of his Son in my place. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I wonder if this reminder needs to hit home for us as God's people this morning. Maybe for us, we've been a Christian for some time now. We know the Christian life it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And so we know our Bible a lot better now. Uh, we're actively serving in roles we'd never accepted before. I wonder are we letting our progress, the very things that we do in our own strength, to make us think, actually, you know, we're pretty special. I mean, everyone's okay, but I'm I'm pretty good. God must be pretty chuffed with me. Are we even straying into that idea of saying He's going to be so happy when I enter His kingdom? You know, I deserve it. Look at everything I'm doing. No. At the end of the day, we are nothing more than unworthy servants, like Israel, not deserving, but greatly loved saved by nothing but the grace of God and so the only appropriate response when we are seeing things rightly when we are our eyes and our hearts are focused where they should be on Christ is to see nothing but the unpayable debt that we owe him in Christ and in these verses as we carry on we're going to be reminded of how badly we need him we need a righteousness not our own but his purchased for us as God now tells Israel, what he requires of them as his people in the land of his blessing. Our third and final reality check, turn from stubbornness, fear God, and be blessed. See, as God brings Israel into the land, they are, remember, they are reminded of these essential terms and conditions. You know, I, I never read terms and conditions these days, to be honest. It's very foolish. I buy some new software or I agree to a new medical plan. I just you know tick that yes okay box straight away I shouldn't well these terms and conditions they matter for Israel they are a question of life or death as we will see we need to heed them well today at the top of the list come with me to verse 12 10 verse 12 and now Israel Here's the key question. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? For Israel to know God's blessings, they had to keep him where he belonged on the thrones of their hearts as a nation walking in all his ways to love him, to serve the Lord with all their heart and all their soul, so different from what had gone so far in their track record. Verse 16, they're told, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. See, their physical circumcision, it was meant to be a sign pointing to a a deeper, essential reality. Their hearts belonged to God, not just their bodies, but their hearts, which meant no longer living in stubborn rebellion against him, but trusting and obeying in all things. And Israel, they had every reason to do this. It's not as if they were foreigners to God's steadfast love and care for them. Moses reminds them here how they had witnessed it with their own eyes, how he got had kept his promises to Abraham for their sakes all along the way. Firstly, how they themselves, Abraham's offspring, would become a great nation. 10 verse 22, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. How they would be in slavery for 400 years, but God would bring them out. He would deliver them. 11 verse 2, and consider today. Since I'm speaking to your children, I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it. it. Consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. His signs, his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and to all his land. What he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses, to their chariots. How he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. God delivered them. He delivered them to the land of his blessing, 11 verse 10, for the land that you are entering to take possession of. It's not like the land of Egypt, but the land that you are going over to possess, verse 11, is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. And so now God effectively gives his people a choice. Having been brought to this point, trust and obey and so remain in the blessing of my rest or persist in your stubbornness and perish away from me. 11 verse 16, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens. There will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord your God is giving you. It doesn't get more serious than that. These are terms and conditions that matter. They will determine Israel's future. And so God tells it you're to keep these words of life close to you at all times. Verse 18, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. You shall bind them. As a sign on your hand, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. This is how Israel, his people, were to live. If you cut one of them, they were to bleed Bible. Now, the language, of course, is metaphorical, but but binding God's commands as a sign on their hands, it means his words would direct their actions. Binding his words as the frontlets between their eyes meant it was to shape the way they saw everything. Their decisions from sun up to sundown was to be shaped by a healthy fear of the Lord. And even Jews today, they perform physical signs to show their attempts of doing just this. Here's one example coming up. This Jewish man, might look a bit strange to us. You see how he has bound that little black box to his forehead and he's bound another one on, uh, on his arm Inside those little black boxes, what we call phylacteries, there will be little scrolls, summaries of the law, maybe the Ten Commandments. And that is this guy's way of saying, I'm trying to obey God's terms and conditions. It's literally between my eyes. It's just before my hands. That was Israel's charge, which summarized, Moses summarizes it in verse 26, this ultimatum. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commands of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And today we look back. We read what we have here of Israel's history and we see, tragically, generation after generation from the king to the street sweeper continuing in the stubbornness of sin against God's command. And so they knew God's curse in the end as he had promised. Eventually they were thrown out of the land of his blessing and they were brought back under slavery, under the nations that they had actually abandoned God for. The law given to Israel, their failure to keep it down the generations. It's this second warning for us, friends. Do not rely on your merits with God. Do not rely on your merits with God. If you're not a Christian here this morning, welcome. I'm so thankful that you are here and please keep on coming. But please know that as Christians, we don't think we're good enough for god for a second we know we aren't see israel are called here his people to do right by him to turn away from stubborn sin to love him that they might know his blessing but they wouldn't and actually they couldn't because deep down in their hearts they were deeply stubborn and rebellious and we are no different We can attach summaries of God's law to, to our foreheads, put it right between our eyes, and so try and obey him faithfully in our own strength. According to our own understanding, it's futile. You might as well try and ice skate uphill. No matter how hard we try, in the end, we will fail in sin because the problem is so much deeper. Our very hearts are prone to going astray, away from God, not seeking him not treating him rightly. So what we need is not terms and conditions from God. No, we need heart surgery. We need this circumcision of the heart that God required of his people, but that they could not attain to. So friends, our only hope today, it's not to say, well, take God's terms and conditions seriously, obey them. No, that's death for us. No, our only hope is to cast ourselves on the greater Moses. God's true mediator for our world, Jesus, who alone did love God, love his neighbor from the heart as Israel were commanded, and so in every way that we failed. And we see that ultimately where? At the cross. Where he laid down his life that we might be forgiven in every way, not by what we do, but by his blood, covering our every sin in the hope in him that we have Forgiveness, because He conquered the grave. Death could not hold Him, for He had no sin. And so in Him, we can know life by His Spirit. We can know this circumcision of the heart. Impossible for us to achieve, but what God can do So we trust in His Son so His Spirit works deep down in us, changing our desires so that we are for God rather than against Him. Friends, the worst kind of stubbornness is the stubbornness that keeps us from depending on Christ. The one who alone can give us new life with God by his Spirit. Insisting that we can do it ourselves despite the fact that our hearts are hard, that we do not desire him in and of ourselves. Don't persist in stubbornness as Israel did. Bow the knee to Christ who alone can set you free. And for us who have done that, well, so now we, as God's people made holy by his Son, we are not to refuse him as Israel did. In Christ we are now called by the strength his Spirit provides to live under the blessing of God's rule as we look forward to life in his kingdom. We have that promise, but we're not there yet. We've still got hearts that are capable of stubborn sin. We all know of a Christian that battle inside us. We were warned in Hebrews twelve twenty-five: See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. See, if God looked at our hearts right now, what would he see more of today? joyful, humble, obedience and thankfulness or stubborn, rebellious pride. We can be busy, busy Christians. We can look so busy, so responsible from the outside to others, but that humble joy that we first knew in Christ, sitting under him, praying to him, walking with him by his word, is that fading for you today? I know when I start wandering down that hopeless path of stubborn, I can do it myself. I take my eyes off of him. I stop listening to him. I look to myself for hope, for strength in what I, I do. My focus becomes less about him and what he has done and more about what I am doing. And I see a change in my behavior when I become so quick to become irritable with others when they rub me up the wrong way. I'm slow to listen. I'm quick to speak. I'm quick to become angry. I'm quick to find faults in others and bear grudges against them while I become more and more blind to my own faults. I'm slow to find peace in the really hard times because I'm no longer looking and prizing the eternal security that is mine in Christ. I'm slow to repent, to believe, to rejoice in his grace. If you know you're heading down that path of sudden prideful sin, you're straying today, can I plead with you, come back to him. Come to the one who said, come to me all you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. My burden is easy, my yoke is light come back to him. Come back to him before you no longer care to take comfort in his saving grace. You no longer desire to sit under him as your good Lord. You no longer see your security in his steadfast love. Friends, pride comes before the fall. So the only wise thing to do And the strength he provides is to put away our stubborn sin, to rejoice that we have all the more reason than Israel to trust and obey and be thankful. Christ shedding his blood to purchase us for his eternal rest we do not deserve, which we will know one day as we remain faithful to him today. He's faithful and so he will bring his people home. Let's resolve to keep on listening, believing, rejoicing, and obeying. Let's resolve to encourage one another to do the same until we do reach that great day in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we as men and women observe only that which is on the outside, but you see the heart. We thank you for this word, your word, that reveals the thoughts and the inclinations of our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that despite our stubborn, prideful sin against you, in your mercy and your grace, you gave your one and only son to die, that we might live, that we might not perish in a refusal to obey your law, for he has obeyed it for us. Father, I pray for each and every one of us today to reflect on this lesson from the history of your people. To take seriously this warning against the stubbornness of sin. To rejoice all the more in the grace you've shown us in Christ and so fix our eyes on him. And so continually repent, continually believe and rejoice in your grace. Help us to encourage one another in faithful obedience this day, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.